golly, it's Wednesday. You're welcome. What was that? You're welcome. With Hillary Rushford. Say it again. You're welcome. In advance. Hello, friend. How are you? How are you these days? I have been having this conversation with you over on Instagram. Just, I guess, sharing my own emotions day to day and sort of how they have changed over the last few weeks and how they change every few days. They change day to day. They change hourly sometimes. (laughs) I can be actually doing pretty well and then suddenly I can be really frustrated about something and then I can get back to feeling rather optimistic again and then I can feel sad and all of this has happened in the span of, you know, two and a half hours, uh, which is not an emotional roller coaster that I am used to. And yet I am hearing and seeing from you in your comments on my Instagram posts and your uh, voting on Instagram stories and your DMs and the uh, live calls that I'm doing with my Elegant Excellence Mastermind students. I am in our private group. I mean, I'm really seeing we are all going through a lot of emotions and sometimes we are up and sometimes we are down and sometimes we are really surprised and confused by what our emotions are. And this is, today's episode is part three of a three-part series on the New York Times bestselling book, Lost Connections, uncovering the causes of depression and anxiety. And I recorded this episode a month and a half ago. Gosh, that feels like forever. I recorded it at the end of February before I left for Mexico. And it was queued up to share with you a few weeks back. And I have really been struck by how relevant these topics are because this book on depression and anxiety, we are all experiencing depression and anxiety, even those of us that do not normally experience depression and anxiety because we are going through crisis, trauma, grief. We are in a terrifying once-in-a-generation global pandemic. So we are experiencing emotions either that we are not normally experiencing or on a more heightened level, or as I said, a more back-and-forth sort of bipolar feeling. And yet what so often it goes back to are core reasons why anyone would feel depressed, or anxious, or deregulated. It just happens to be because of a pandemic, which is not what we are typically associating it with, but it goes back to feeling disconnected and out of control and all manner of things that are understandable. And we would understand if you lost someone to cancer or you suddenly lost your job, we would understand these things as normal. It just happens to be we are all going through them at the same time. And there are sometimes multiple things all happening. And today's topics from the book are around loneliness, friendship, and connection. And this general premise, I mean, this book is so well-researched that it does show these are foundational things we struggle with that are just heightened at this time. And this the topic of today of being disconnected from other people, in some ways I see that we feel less right now and in some ways we feel more. We may feel less disconnected because in this really rather beautiful and captivating way, we're all having a shared experience. And I would say that is one of my favorite parts of this. And I want to acknowledge that lives are being lost and I'm not simply being like, you know, what's an upside, but something that will be beautiful, that we will tell our children and our grandchildren about are those moments of the people in Spain and Italy and France who are singing outside of their windows, out out of their balconies, in the apartments, you know, and And they're having these moments of connection. And the fact that right now, every single friend you have is struggling with the same thing as you. 
Because normally when you're going through a breakup, your girlfriend who is married with two kids and you're over here being single, she doesn't understand. You guys are going through very different things. You've lost your job and your other girlfriend's job is really taking off. She doesn't understand. Right now, we all understand. We can't leave our houses. People are dying. I mean, there's so much that we have in common. Even though our experiences are different in those, we may feel less disconnection because I'm like, we, we're all walking through the same thing and I can share my very real emotions every day. And no one's like, Oh, you're just feeling really emotional. And you felt the need to come over on Instagram and share it. People are like, Oh, thank you for saying that. I'm not the only one. I had that exact same thought today, or thank you for putting into words exactly what I'm struggling with. I couldn't, couldn't figure out, couldn't quite put my finger on it. Or maybe you were feeling more disconnected because it's highlighting our different experiences. Maybe you are the single girlfriend amongst all of your friends and you're like, I am feeling more disconnected than ever because I am so incredibly lonely and my friends are together. Or I'm feeling more disconnected because I am an extrovert and normally I have my own sense of wishing my relationships were different or feeling a little bit lonely, but oh my gosh, I have never felt more disconnected because I'm such an extrovert or I feel more disconnected because I have less money or a smaller space or I'm, you know, in a tiny apartment and I'm watching these people in huge mansions or that have all of this money or whatever. And so I'm feeling more disconnected because I'm thinking we are having two very different experiences. Maybe you are feeling less disconnected because you have more time with family. You might be spending more time with your partner than ever before, and you might feel more beautifully connected. You're spending more time with your kids. You're on FaceTime with your mom more often. You're on FaceTime with your girlfriends more often. You're feeling more connected because you have more time. Or maybe you are feeling less connected because, again, you're single and everyone seems to be off with their families, or you're feeling more disconnected because you can't get together. And sure, people are texting, but like it doesn't feel the same as the fact that you were used to going to church on Sundays and having your small group on Wednesday nights and you actually feel more disconnected during this time. Listen in today's episode both for how does this hit me right now? What is different right now than normal? Because these things that Hillary is addressing today that this author has so beautifully researched they are, they are timeless. They are foundational. But do they give me additional insights into whether I am feeling more or less lonely now in this very present, just last few weeks or less and why? And also listen for the future because this is a season. It is unique and noteworthy and memorable season, but how will these lessons and teachings apply a year from now? What can you take away to say, I'm going to transport myself to next summer. I'm going to transport myself back to six months ago. And I'm going to consider, is this true for me? Does this help? Is there anything that I would want to shift and adjust? I cut the original introduction that I had to this episode because it didn't feel applicable, but I said something in there that is so fascinating. I mean, it's just wild that I only recorded this six weeks ago and yet it can feel so different. So I had shared this concept before that I think we are a very conflicted people because traditionally, by traditionally, I mean a few weeks ago, we are both lonely yet exhausted. We have a fear of missing out and we feel sad we weren't invited to things and we want to be invited to things and we simultaneously want to decline the invitation to all things and have permission to just stay home and watch Netflix. <laughs> and I have struggled with that too. It is one of the reasons that it really fascinates me is because I think on a deep cellular level, I so desire deeper human connections and the vast majority of the time, I am thrilled to not have to leave my house and to have some reason to cancel and stay home in my sweatpants. So I feel that duality. And I'm curious how that hits us now. Do we feel any differently now? I'm seeing memes now that are like, I promise the next time when I get in, when you invite me to something 
when this is all over, I promise I, I'll say yes. I promise I won't cancel. Like I promise I'll say yes and won't cancel. Because we realize we've had all of these memes about how ultimately we want to pretend that we aren't feeling well and cancel our girlfriend. And really it's just we wanted to you know, not leave the house and watch Netflix. So we say right now, I won't cancel. I want plans. I want social interaction. But I'm really curious, will we? I, I asked my mastermind students to journal on who do you want to connect deeper with during this time? Maybe this is a time when we realize we want less relationships. Trying to keep up with this many people virtually on Zooms and FaceTimes and texts isn't working. Maybe it's time for you to make a list of who are my, who is my handful of people? And I actually want to go deeper with them and I appreciate that. And I don't want to try to have 50, you know, medium level friendships anymore. Maybe it's having less commitments. Actually, I don't want to put my kids back in soccer and ballet and karate and every single thing under the sun. Yes, I want them to have some things to do, but maybe we were a little bit overcommitted. Is there a, do we see a value of having slowed down and also of maybe doing FaceTime? Maybe we, we picture returning both less exhausted and more connected because I'm having FaceTime conversations now with family and friends that I didn't normally. We would have had a text or we would have exchanged a voice memo. Um, and now we are having a deeper level of connection that I'm thinking, I don't necessarily want to stop this when this is over. I know I will get a little bit more busy, but on the other hand, I don't want to get so busy that I don't have the, the time for this. So I think it's a really powerful topic to notice right now what we're experiencing and what do we want to be different in the months and years to come? What do our relationships look like today? our loneliness and our friendship? What are we learning and appreciating during this time? What are we missing during this time? And let's start to hold the hope and vision and curate the future of what we want our experience to be a year from now. When we look back on this time as in the rearview mirror, and yet we are present with ourselves for what does loneliness and friendship look like and feel like for us. So today is our final part three of our inadvertent book club on this New York Times bestseller called Lost Connections, uncovering the real causes of depression and the unexpected solutions. And if you've not heard either of the last two weeks, the first week might give you a little bit more context as a basis, but I think you could absolutely get uh, plenty out of listening to this first and then going to listen to the others that ultimately he gives us seven or nine reasons that are at the core of why we struggle with depression. And I felt that three of those really spoke to this community, the work I do, the conversations that I'm having with you, with my real girlfriends. And so I wanted to unpack each one of them a little bit more. And the final one that we're going to discuss today is disconnection from other people. As we've said in past episodes, all of his reasons are about disconnection from something, from meaningful work, from uh, uh, hope of the future, from respect, from connection with the environment. We are so disconnected that it leads to this depression and anxiety and that his anecdotes are all about reconnection. So as we talk about this disconnection from other people, he says, loneliness hangs over our culture today like a thick smog. Feeling lonely, it turns out, causes your cortisol levels to absolutely soar as much as some of the most disturbing things that can ever happen to you. Becoming acutely lonely, experiments have found, is as stressful as experiencing a physical attack. It's worth repeating. Being deeply lonely seemed to cause as much stress as being punched by a stranger. They did a study in which they recorded how many friends and healthy social connections each person had. And then they deliberately exposed them with their knowledge, to the cold virus. And they found out that the people who were more isolated were three times more likely to catch a cold than the people with close connections. Over nine years, they studied another group of people and found out that isolated people were two to three times more likely to die. Loneliness itself seems to be deadly. Being disconnected has the same effect on your health as being obese, which until then was considered the biggest health crisis the developed world faced. 
Lonely people are also anxious, have low self-esteem, are pessimistic, and are afraid other people will dislike them. Loneliness actually leads to depression, not the other way around. And the effect is really big. If you said that our loneliness and culture was a straight line, and at one end you are 0% lonely, and the other end you're 100% lonely, if you move from the middle 50% to 65%, your chances of developing depressive symptoms increased eight times. Through just becoming slightly more lonely, you became eight times more likely to become depressed. Why is this? Why would loneliness cause depression and anxiety so much? Studies show that they believe it's because human beings first evolved in small hunter-gatherer tribes. Evolution fashioned us not only to feel good when we're connected, but to feel secure. One of the ways they've tested this is looking at a very closed, highly religious farming community, a bit like the fundamentalist wing of the Amish, and they're called the Hutterites. And they have found in general that anywhere in the world people describe being lonely, they will also, throughout their sleep, experience more of something called micro-awakenings. The best theory is that you don't feel safe going to sleep when you're lonely because the early humans literally weren't safe if they were sleeping apart from their tribes. So this group of the Hutterites showed, based on testing these micro-awakenings, the lowest levels of loneliness they had seen anywhere in the world. Today, we are more disconnected than ever before. In the 10 short years between 1985 and 1994, active involvement in community organizations fell by 45%. We dropped out of community and turned inward. When Americans were asked, how many confidants do you have? They've been asked this for a cross-section of citizens for many years. And several decades ago, the average number of close friends an American had was three. By 2004, the most common answer was none. It's worth pausing on that. There are now more Americans who have no close friends than any other option. And it's not that we turned inwards to our families. The research shows we've stopped doing stuff with them too. We eat together far less, watch TV together far less, go on vacation together far less. Virtually all forms of familial togetherness decreased over the last quarter of a century. We do things together less than any humans who came before us. The author says, I remembered that all throughout my childhood into my early teens, I had a daydream. That my parents' friends, scattered all over the country, would move to live on our street. And I'd be able to go and sit with them when things were hard at, work, hard at home, which was a lot of the time. I would have this daydream every day. But our street consisted only of other people, equally shut away and equally alone. And that memory he has of childhood really struck me. And it's a no longer conversation for another day, but it made me think about why I structured our weddings in the way that I did and how much I have this inherent desire for that connection. I mean, one of the things that matters the most to me out of anything that happened at our wedding is that my parents have two sets of best friends that they've been friends with for you know, 30, 50 years now. And both of them flew to Cartagena to be there for our weddings. And the look on my mom's face being in this foreign country with two of her best friends, I mean, that literally was like the number one thing I did my entire wedding for. I mean, it's just she was just like, I just can't believe it's happening. I just can't believe it's happening. And I, I wish that I could go back and do my whole entire wedding weekend only with those people just to get that depth. And then I wish I could do that with every single group of people that we had there because I so resonate with this desire that I love my parents' best friends. Uh, this one couple, Nick and Carol, they used to come visit us every year growing up. We, we, we didn't live near them. And I would stay up late at night talking to them with my parents. And I loved that. It was one of my favorite annual traditions that I, that I looked forward to. I just really genuinely liked these people who were my parents' friends. And to know that there is so little of that connection. I don't see them now. I don't have that connection in, in being home at my parents. And so getting to create that, I just really, it really struck me 
to the point that, I mean, I paused on this sentence. I thought about it for days. I had a long conversation with my sister-in-law in which I'm crying about my expectations around my wedding and these core desires that they really go back to about connection and about the value of these are people that have known my sister and I our whole lives. In And the, the husband of one couple and the wife of another uh, prayed over Jeremy and I at our rehearsal dinner. And it was so beautiful because Nick said, uh, you know, we're, Rhonda, I believe that we prayed over Ashley and Clay, my sister and brother-in-law, at their wedding. I think it'd be appropriate for us to do the same. And just little things like that. I mean, that means so much to me because it's connection, right? It's people who have gone to one another's children's weddings and Nick and Carol lost their grandson years ago to SIDS and they've walked through death and they've walked through death of parents and of grandchildren. And um, it just really struck me how much we do deeply desire that. And I wonder if something comes up for you to, to confirm, yes, deep within me, there is this desire for that true tribal connection, for people of multi-generations, for people that I grew up with and that know me and that are just there to easily spend time with. It's not a one-off event. It doesn't only happen one time at our wedding. We don't have to place all our hope and expectation on one day or a few days because it's something that's never going to repeat in our life. I'll continue reading. In one study, they found that isolated rats developed 84 times the number of breast cancer tumors as the rats who had a community. They've done studies where they put lonely people into brain scanning machines, and they noticed they would spot potential threats within 150 milliseconds, whereas socially connected people, it took twice as long. What was happening? Protracted loneliness causes you to be more suspicious of any social contact. You're more likely to take offense where none was intended. It's a snowball effect. Lonely people are scanning for threats because they unconsciously know that nobody's looking out for them. And it can be reversed, but they will need even more love, more reassurance than they would need in the first place. But the tragedy is many depressed and anxious people receive less love as they become harder to be around. I can relate to this in my life. There is someone, an older individual in my and Jeremy's life, and this is exactly what I thought of. They are exactly who I thought of when I read this, that it's like they will blow up family situations to be a level 10 offense when the rest of the family is like, there was no offense attended. What just happened? I don't know. I don't know. Do you understand? I'm really confused. And I read this and I was like, it's because there's a heightened awareness. There's an expectation because this person is highly lonely highly depressed and highly anxious, that it has become this snowball effect that they are prepped for that to happen. And of course, they blow up, they cause an issue, they cause more loneliness, more disconnection, and then they prove themselves right. And then because the rest of the family thinks, well, they're so irrational, I don't know how to get through to them, everybody kind of pulls away. And it just really broke my heart to understand how this was happening, but it gave me some language to have a conversation with someone else in my family to say, "Here's here explains in this book what's happening. This is why it seems wild to us, but this is what's happening. And we can make a difference, but we would really have to pour into this person and know that it is going to be hard. And I can even look back in my own life at times that I felt more disconnected and more suspect of people. And it was I was harder to be friends with because I was expecting that you were going to disappoint me. I was expecting that you were going to hurt me. I was expecting that I was going to be too much for you. That may be something you can relate with or someone else in your life. And hopefully it gives us some compassion to understand those are people that are feeling disconnected. And while we aren't called to save everyone, if this is someone that you feel called and compelled to in your life, know that it will take extra effort, but it is possible. I have just seen in my own life how much emotionally healthier I am in the last decade, and therefore I know that such growth is possible. So they discovered in their studies that feeling lonely was different from simply being alone. Surprisingly, the sensation of loneliness didn't have much to do with how many people you spoke to every day or every week. Loneliness is instead the sense that you're not sharing anything that matters with anyone. To end loneliness, you need a sense of mutual aid and protection with at least one other person and ideally many more. It wasn't simply about seeing people, but truly feeling seen by people and needed in both sides. One study looked at people who were suffering from a compulsive internet use, and they found that it was preceded by depression or anxiety 
not that it caused depression or anxiety. It's because we're meant to be in connection with one another in a safe, caring way. And when it's mediated by a screen, that's absolutely not there. So people were feeling disconnected and turning to the internet for a sense of this connection, but it ultimately wasn't satisfying enough. It's the difference between pornography and sex. It addresses a basic itch, but it never satisfies. Our obsessive use of social media is an attempt to fill a hole, but it's a hole that existed long before anyone had a smartphone. We, without ever quite intending it, have become the first humans to ever dismantle our tribes. As a result, we have been left alone on a savanna we do not understand, puzzled by our own sadness. And we know that. We know that we move around more today than ever before in generations, and we're communicating so much through screens, and our basic cultural interaction has simply changed. It's not just you. It's all of us. It's not just your age group, your friends group, this city. You know, I find myself wondering if Jeremy and I moved, would it be different somewhere else? Is it just NYC with its fast pace and big dreams? But then I got to thinking, I can't think of any anecdote from this book that was about a big city that said it was any worse there. He actually has plenty of stories about small towns and more remote places. It says to me it's all of us. It isn't better or worse in some other place unless we have the extreme example of a group like the Amish or the Heterites. So of all of the nine causes of disconnection that he talks about in this book, what I am happy to report and why I'm ending on this positive note in our little series is that of the seven areas of reconnection that he teaches, seven ways that we can heal and ameliorate this depression and anxiety, three of them, almost half, apply to this one area of disconnection. The ways that we can reconnect are other people, social prescribing, and sympathetic joy. Let me read from the chapter on other people. There was a study that asked, does trying to consciously make yourself happier actually work? It turns out if you try deliberately to be happier in the United States, you will not become happier. But if you try in Russia, Japan, or Taiwan, you will. That's because in the West, we have a mostly individualistic way of looking at life. Where in Asia, they have a collective-looking way. So if you try to pursue happiness in the United States or Britain, you pursue it for yourself. You get stuff, rack up achievement, build up your own ego. But if you consciously pursue happiness in Russia, Japan, or China, you try to make things better for your group, for the people around you. The studies show that if you want to stop being depressed, don't be yourself. <laughs> don't focus on how you're worth it. Everything that's taught is thinking about you, you, you. That's what helped to make you feel so lousy in the first place. Be us. Be we. Be part of the group. Let yourself flow into other people's stories. He says, I'm conscious that in some bookstores, this book will be shelved in the self-help section. But I now think... There is something wrong with the self and the solution coming from the repairing and, and aggrandizing the self. It's a big word that one doesn't say often, folks. So he says, now when I feel myself starting to slide down, I go to see a friend and I try to focus very hard on how they are feeling and make them feel a little better. Even if you're in pain, you can almost always make someone else feel a little better. Back to communities like the Amish or the Hitterites. The Amish give their children the opportunity as to whether or not they want to join the church. They get to leave for two years and go live in the broader culture at large and then decide whether or not they want to rejoin. And around 80% choose to join the church. Their culture has chosen to consciously slow down and they don't see that as a deprivation. And the studies have shown they have significantly lower levels of depression than other Americans, largely because they have such a profound sense of belonging and meaning. He says, when life comes to an end, if you get to heaven, it's interacting with people. That's how we look at it. If your picture of a perfect afterlife is being with the people you love all the time, 
Why wouldn't you choose it today? And that heaven bit, again, really got me. Um, Feeling all kinds of emotional about our wedding. It's like I said, I said to Jeremy when our one-year anniversary came up, I guess almost two months ago now, I said like I was crying to him and I was like, I just... It's like I want more time with all of those people. I want 10 long weekends back to back with every single group of people that we have there. You know, my favorite part of our wedding, one of my very, very, very favorite parts, we stayed at two boutique hotels. One of them was smaller and it's where the actual wedding was and um, it, it couldn't house everyone. And we stayed there with my family, my parents' best friends, my business partners, um, a couple of my close friends from... New York that I had known the longest and my family, if I didn't say that. And every morning I would come downstairs and there was one really long, huge table and it's beautiful. It's like behind all this draping ivy and there's these arched uh, uh, stone aways. I don't know how to describe that, but anyways, it's a beautiful long table and I would just come downstairs and all of my favorite people would just be having breakfast together. Like my friend Alex, who I've known for 10 years, and you know my business partner at the time, who I absolutely adore, and his little daughter sitting next to my niece, and my parents' oldest friends, and my husband, and just everyone is just hanging out. And it's just like, and I don't, one of my great regrets is that I never took a photo. <laughs> I, I wish I had a photo. It is what I would have framed sitting in front of me right on my desk right now. I know it would be one of my favorite photos. So I've just had to work a little bit on my mindset that, okay, God, okay, universe, maybe the reason I don't have that photo is because it's meant to stay in my imagination. And different people are meant to rotate throughout it. It's not that set group of people that are fixed that were there. Because truly that table is what I envision heaven is like. I mean, that's the dream, right? Like if you believe in heaven and if you believe it's the idyllic, this idyllic place, then are you with me that maybe it's just a big long table with all your favorite people just hanging out. It's leisurely. The sun is warm. There's beautiful flowers. The fruit juice is amazing. The pastries are phenomenal and you're eating all the gluten because you're on vacation. So who cares? Like just this, this is heaven. And it just happens all the time. So I thought, okay, this is really convicting to me because if that is my dream, if that is what I desire the most, if I am in tears because I just wish we could do our wedding all over again, not because I could wear the dress, not because of the party, just to have breakfast in a small group with every single group of people that were important to us there. Okay, then what's getting in my way, you know, for like, for real from having that more in my life? You know, it's, no, I don't have friends banging out my door all the time, constantly inviting me to brunches and, and coffees and trying to recreate that. But also, I'm not incessantly texting them. You know, I do think I reach out more in most of my relationships, but it, it's there and I'm not trying as much. I'm like, well, I, I spend a lot of time doing work, which is my passion and I do have a team to take care of and those are people I, I care about and I feel like my work is really making a difference. You know, but honestly, some of it still is about me. And yeah, I also need to keep making money because I, I, I built a huge plane. You know, it costs a lot of money to run a business. So I can't, it's not really just about how much I want to make, but you got to keep it going. So the best I can say for now is that I'm very actively pursuing simplifying. I'm I'm too close to say if I've done it successfully, but um, this is evidence that it's not easy because this is so my heart, and yet I'm still not doing it. And I'm more empowered than most people in running a business, and I've thought more about this, but it still has taken me a long time to make this shift, and now it's brand new, and I kind of don't want to declare it. But, you know, the the this year has been a lot about work, and the year before was a lot about personal. We were planning weddings. We had health things going on. We had family things going on. Um, so sometimes I feel like life can just happen. The pendulum swings one direction or the other a little bit more heavily. But for now, you know, I've, I've added in my morning routine and I'm thinking more about how I'm spending my time. And someone DM me recently and said, do you have time set in your schedule for when you reply to friends and family? And I said, I don't, but I have absolutely been thinking about that. And I love that that's a question that you asked because I realized I, 
I, I, I, I'm not. And the deadlines that happen with work and the other more immediate things take precedence. So I've thought about, do I set up like a bi-monthly call with my mom? I'll call her while she's on her way to work on Friday mornings. Do I set up that you know Tuesday evenings, every other week, I FaceTime with my sister and the kids? Um, I haven't implemented that yet, but I will say I'm planning ahead more with my family. I have more times planned to see them. And even something like my wedding, I realized I am so delighted by the time we got together and the memories we got together. I don't want to feel like it's never going to happen again. So it can't just be a wedding thing. So we're planning our first family trip um, that we've never done all together. And, you know, we're, we're planning that far out and we're having to really work at it. But I am I am making that a priority. And so I just really want to come back to that concept. Like when we talk about loneliness, if we think heaven is connecting with people, then why are we not doing it? And what are the tiny little things that it's not enough to say, well, I just don't know people. I don't know where to meet people. I'm busy. Like we've got to take more ownership than that because this is our happiness. This is our peace. And we are in control and we are empowered. And so sometimes it is that three degree shift that we've talked about in the last couple of episodes how could I shift it three degrees more that I connect more with these people? But he also says that it's more than that. It's about helping and caring about other people. So to me, what's compelling in that is just noticing when I do have those times, when I'm hanging out with friends, when I'm on a phone call, when I'm on a FaceTime, whatever that is, am I definitely providing that mutual support? Sometimes it's fine to just get together and watch The Bachelor or have a chat about how great our trip was to Mexico. But am I also being sure to really ask things about other people? And and I'll be honest, I do feel that this is one of my strengths, but it just convicted me again. What is 3% more that I could be doing that? I think about the friend and I actually send the text and I follow up and I ask them how they're doing and they answer and they chat, but then I keep asking them follow-up questions. And, you know, I, I don't just think about them, but not text or reach back out. I mean, I think that's something I'm really guilty of. I think of people a lot more than I actually slow down and reach out and I can get overwhelmed by like, oh, I have so many texts. Okay, Hillary, let's think about the 3% shift. When could you put time in your week to actually reply to those texts? Because you're wanting these connections and yet people are reaching out and you're not getting back to them. So it just has me thinking, how can I do that even more? And what am I choosing over that? Very specifically, what is stealing that 3% of my joy and shifting it towards disconnection and therefore more unhappiness? So the next area of reconnection that he teaches us on is something that he calls social prescribing. Now, I actually had to Google what exactly is social prescribing. I get the way that it's described in this book, and it's what's described in this book. It's that therapists, people that are trying to help someone heal from something, are not just giving them one-on-one therapy or medication, but they are encouraging them to take part in some sort of group activity. And there are beautiful stories in here about how powerful that is to get people together who are gardening or you know, making the world better in some way or reconnecting and supporting one another. And they say it isn't something that just happens. It has to be managed and supported. And I think a lot of us sort of think, oh, well, I tried that thing one time and it didn't really work. And there is a bit of an emphasis that this is a structural thing. Again, this is less individual you. Why couldn't you just find something to join and more all of us collectively together? How can we create more things like this and put the structure in place that's really needed in order for it to be meaningful and survive? He said it's a shift from asking what's the matter to with you to what matters to you. That's often what's missing is finding a way to resolve the underlying problem. And a lot of times in therapy, you can imagine, we're asking, so so what's wrong with you? Why are you here in therapy today? Tell me uh, what what's the matter with you, as opposed to giving people something to care about and something to care about together. The truth, though, is that with social prescribing, very little research has been done because drugs for depression and anxiety is one of the biggest industries in the world. So there are enormous funds sloshing around to finance research into it. But if social prescribing were to take off, it wouldn't make much money. In fact, it would blast a hole in that multi-billion dollar chemical market. There would be less profit. So none of the vested interests want to know. But there have been a small series of studies One of them, for example, uh, looked at people who did therapeutic horticulture. They gave gardening a try and found that it moved people on average 4.5 points on the depression scale. 
which is more than double the effect of chemical antidepressants. A century from now, we will look back on the discovery that you need to meet people's emotional needs to recover from depression and anxiety as a key moment in medical history. And we know this, you know, like we could tell one another, oh, you're lonely, you're looking for people, join a church or a book club. But the statistics show that we read earlier that our engagement in all of these things is plummeting. Maybe that's because we feel like we're getting it online or we are addicted to our phones. Um, you know, I think of Jeremy and I, we're a part of a church, but I'm, we're not doing a small group right now. That's really a way to get more deeply connected. So we show up and we have conversations, but we're not really actively going deeper with people. I work out in a group class, but it's online. So I'm not actually connecting with anyone. I'm just seeing the instructor live. I'm doing it from the comfort of my own home. Um, I made a friend at the coffee shop uh, that I work from in the mornings uh, with my laptop. And we just kind of say, you know, hi to one another. Um, But it's not like we then went on to be like, let's exchange numbers and let's hang out. It's just nice to say hi, but we're not really talking that deeply about what's happening in our lives. Um, I did just join a co-working space recently. Because I was in Mexico, I haven't been yet, but this these chapters are really compelling me extra to want to go there and want to be a part of that. You know, what, what I'm saying is I'm thinking through different things in my life and saying, all right, well, I'm part of a church, but how could it go deeper? All right, I'm working out, but let me acknowledge that that's not leading to connection. I say hi to people at the local coffee shop, but okay, that's again, that isn't really that meaningful connection. Well, this co-working space, maybe that's someplace that I could get this. And it could be easy for me to say, oh, I'm a little busy or I just want to get a lot done today. But if I think back to this book, this seems like a pretty compelling reason to say, this might be something really important for me to add into my schedule. To say, I'm going to go to the co-working space two days a week and I'm going to add into my schedule an hour where it's okay if I just get stuck in conversation. I'm not going in with blinders on, trying to power through work and, and get it done. I'm going there, but I've got to allow that space to my schedule. I can't say that I'm on a deadline to finish you know, a podcast episode and then also go and want that connection. So I'm just paying attention to those little shifts. It makes me want to get back into a uh, mastermind myself with other female entrepreneurs. The one that I'm in, we paused at the top of the year and got busy and kind of haven't reconnected. And again, it just gets really honest with myself. Like, am I doing this? What more could help? And what could that be? Could it make me 3% happier, less lonely, more connected? And it again, it doesn't mean that you're talking all about you. It could also be listening to and supporting other people. So when I think of going to that co-working space, will I feel better and more connected both by going and sharing and letting people get to know me and by giving business advice and encouragement and sharing and really listening more than I talk. Again, just these little 3% shifts. As we've said over the last few weeks, we probably wouldn't say, oh, I'm materialistic and I have junk values. And we might not say, I'm incredibly lonely. But we all would have some element of that. And I know from my podcast topics that friendship, for example, is a very popular episode that we've done. I think a lot of us crave that and it feels elusive and it feels far and it feels hard and how do we do that? And it's not quite what we want it to be. And I think to me, it's just saying, again, how can I make it 3% better? How can I just head in that direction and acknowledge that this matters and I don't have to have all the answers, but what's a 3% shift I could make in my schedule, in my priorities, in the emphasis that I'm placing on this in my life. So the last chapter I want to share is on sympathetic joy, which is a concept I had never heard of, and yet it is an ancient technique, which is really beautiful. It's the idea that if you can be happy for others, there's always going to be an endless supply of happiness available to you. And you can read in the book how you go about this sympathetic joy meditation. Perhaps it's something you can even Google. But what this researcher found was that the things she'd been trained by culture to envy were in fact the least valuable things we have. Who's envious of someone else's good character or someone else's wonderful treatment of their spouse? You're not envious of that. You might admire that, but you're envious of what other people have materially or status-wise. Isn't that compelling? Isn't that compelling to realize that what we're jealous of is not... Look what great character she has. Look what, like, the things that actually matter. I just found that so compelling. 
Another study showed that if you had done something similar called the loving kindness meditation, you were almost twice as likely to help somebody else when a situation was presented in front of you. You could double your compassion through doing this practice even for a short time, which in turn would lead to a greater connection with other people. They found other psychological changes that people can try to. There's evidence that people who pray become less depressed. Cognitive behavioral therapy, which is something that I've talked about before, has a small effect that should be combined with social change if you really want the best results. So it isn't just your thoughts, but then the actions that you go afterwards. But ultimately, this is all about using our thoughts to find a way to get back to reconnection. A rather crazy example of this is the connection that they found between deep meditation and psychedelic experiences. So there's basically research that has been done into giving people LSD and psychedelics in these controlled environments. I remember when I first heard about it on the Goop podcast, and I was like, this is really weird and out there, and I'm not sure why this podcast interviewer is so into this. I realized when I read this book, oh, that was the episode of the Goop podcast where they had this author on. And after I've read about what the study is really about, I totally get why she was so fascinated about it. Because what it really does is it separates your sense of ego and self-importance you gain a radically different perspective on yourself. One of them says, you could say people have forgotten who they are, what they're capable of. They've gotten stuck. Many depressed people can only see their pains, their hurts, their resentments, and their failures. So it turns out that uh, deep meditation or this, these psychedelic experiences that, again, are only taking place right now in controlled environments, what they're doing is kind of allowing someone to zoom out. It's like you're looking at the lake of humanity and you get that radically different sense of perspective on yourself. Back when we talked about the teenagers that couldn't look towards the future, we talked about that in last week's episode, if they were struggling with depression, they just couldn't even think about what their goals were five or 10 years from now. That's that same sense of getting so stuck in the pain of what's happening in your life, you just can't zoom out and see the bigger picture. See that actually things are going to be okay, there's hope, there's a future, there's growth. And what these things do is get our brains to kind of release and unlock and sort of get our egos unstuck to sort of be able to zoom out and realize, oh, this is what the whole wide world is about and this isn't all about my pain and my problems. The thing is that our egos protect us. They guard us. But when they grow too big, they cut us off from the possibility of connection. And to people who only feel safe behind walls, dismantling their walls doesn't feel like a jailbreak. It feels like an invasion. So they found that some people who went through this experience actually felt very traumatic in the psychedelic experience because they were like, wait a minute, my ego's gone. And I have hidden behind the walls of my ego for so long to protect myself from the world. Like this just feels like being naked. But for most people, it felt like a relief. Like, oh my gosh, I've been, you know, stuck inside those walls. And now I have this different vantage point. The goal in the long term isn't to annihilate the ego, but to return us to a healthy relationship with our ego. One of the women who was in the study was a receptionist in a quite degrading job. And then she done this psychological, um, psychedelic experience, and she had this awakening that materialism doesn't matter, what we talked about two weeks ago, that we're all equal, that our status distinctions are pointless, what we talked about last week. And now she's back in a world that teaches us all the time that materialism is the most important thing, that we're not equal, and that you'd better bloody respect status distinctions. She returned to a cold bath of disconnection. And slowly, she became depressed again because the insights she had gained through the psychedelic experience couldn't be maintained in the outside world as it currently exists. It turns out that psychedelics show you the possibility of how connection can make you feel. But then it's up to you to find ways to maintain the experience. It's like an opening of the mind that allows you to see the things that are already inside of you. So... Finally, to me, what that says is that it's about our thoughts, which you know I am passionate about. And whether it is prayer or meditation or cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, that then also includes these societal and life changes. So it's not just about the thoughts, but the actions. But when they talk about sympathetic joy, 
it makes me think about a teaching that I was given that was really powerful to me on forgiveness, which is a longer topic for another time. But really, this person was talking about the incredible breakthrough they had had in forgiveness by every time they thought of that person wishing the best for them, truly wishing the best for them. And I went through a really hard situation earlier this year with a betrayal in my life. And I really tried that as often as possible to just take that anger and just be like, I am wishing this for them and I'm wishing this and I hope this good things happens and I hope this good thing happens. It is really hard. <laughs> like I feel resistant, like both times that I read this, this concept of sympathetic joy where you are wishing good things for the people that have harmed you and hurt you. Ugh, that feels heavy and hard. I know like I avoid those that section in my prayer journal of hard things. Like I'd rather just focus on the the lighter, the happier things. So let's start small. You know, I think about the fact that back in February, I cried twice in a week because girlfriends of mine who I've met through the magic of Instagram, who are fellow influencers, um, they both got baby news. My friend Ashley Lemieux found out that she was pregnant and my friend Jasmine Starr had been matched with her new adopted daughter. That's sympathetic joy. You know, texting colleagues when they get a great press feature um, or that friend that you're proud of them. You know, I love the idea of sympathetic joy that it's saying there's happiness all around you. Don't look at bad things to make you feel better. Oh, that's happening for them. At least I'm above that. But look at good things to make you feel even better. Look at that joy happening over there. Look at that joy. I can get out of myself and, and focus on other people's joy as a way to get myself unstuck. And, you know, these are joy in friend contacts that, that make you feel better. Because I take away from this book that depression makes it all about us. Anxiety makes it all about us. What are the things that make it all about life and the world and all of us together? That actually gets us inspired and happier you know, church in my life is about there being more than you, a higher power, a purpose, uh, being called to help others. And I realize not everyone has that faith tradition or that thing in their life, but I saw that differently after reading this and realizing, oh, that's like worship is a form of meditation. It's getting outside of myself and seeing the bigger picture, envisioning that there is more to the world than what's in my bank account today or what's on my to-do list or that upsetting text message that I got. You know, the feeling of, of missing out on social media or comparison is all about me and my ego and feeling small. We talked about unfollowing people on Instagram a few episodes back to just say, you know, this this isn't this isn't a little thing to notice these tiny little moments of I'm not really feeling joy for these people. Let me follow things that bring me joy. Last week I gave you a, just a couple examples of uh, a pod of Instagram accounts that bring me joy, and it's just like for me following that Together Rising account that I shared. Like it brings me joy even when there's hard things in the world. I have that sympathetic joy of but, but these people are coming together and these people are helping and that is just a little bit different energy in feeling less disconnected as I go throughout my day so one-on-one -on -one, how can you choose to do more of that you know don't focus on like what if somebody turns me down or what if I keep inviting and they say no just be confident that you've done everything you can to put it out there you know you've done everything you can to make space for it in your life. If someone invites you someplace, you do have the energy and the bandwidth to go. If somebody texts you or calls you, you will make the the time to get back to them. And again, this is something that I struggle with. So I'm not saying this is easy. There may be some of you that feel like your life is so full with kids and all of that. Like, how do I find the time? But it's just checking in. Do you need to find the time? Because there is that sense of disconnection. And this actually is something that needs to be prioritized. Uh, in a small group, you know, how can you choose to do that more? And just being willing to stay more open to that, even if you don't know, you're like, I don't know how I would join a small group. I'm not religious. A church doesn't make sense to me. I'm not sure what that other group is. Just keep asking. Keep praying about it, journaling about it, seeking it, looking for something one day a month. It can be a political rally or it can be a book club, but saying just one day a month, I'm going to go do something in a small group way. And I'm going to be okay in the beginning that I might not make all these friends and it might not be an instant connection, but I want to keep leaning in. I don't want to start leaning out 
because I'm not getting it. And for all of us, just as, as a collective, how can you tap into that mindset more? Whether that's meditation or worship or therapy or finding some place that does the psychedelic treatment, but that we are working on that mindset of seeing all of us all together, being less focused on ourselves. And again, this is one of those things I don't think any of us would say, oh, I'm very egotistical. But you just realize our, our thoughts are all about us so often. I mean, how are we going to survive the day? Are we going to get this thing done? Is somebody going to like this? Are we going to be under budget? Do we have the money for this? Like whatever. And so just how often are we zooming out from that? And I feel more convicted about meditation or worship or these things that I dabble in or I have in different areas of my life. But if I do that more, am I creating more spaciousness to be less focused on myself. And the data here shows I am more likely, if I have done those loving kindness meditations, to help other people, to be more compassionate to other people. And of course, that brings me back into a state of connection. So the advice throughout the book is the same for everyone, which has to mean that we are all out there and we need to do better all together. You know, this this three of the things to reconnect are about making more relationships. So if you feel lonely, you're not alone. It's everyone. It's all of us. We're all too busy. We're all thinking of ourselves too often, too in our ego, too busy with work to commit, you know, too negative that people are, aren't out there to make the time or to try. And I realize this is an area that I can get, if not hopeless, just not very hopeful about Um, Jeremy really helps me to remember, like, if not this, then something better. If it isn't this friendship, this friendship isn't serving me. If this friendship is kind of fading away and I don't hear from them as much as I want, I don't see them as much, and I feel like I'm pouring in more than they are, okay, then if not this friendship, then something better. I don't know. Do I part from that friend to create that space or do I just hold it with a more open hand? I don't know. If not this community, if I'm not getting everything out of this community or this season of friendship or people in my life, okay, then I believe that if not this, then something better. And I can be grateful for what I have, but I also can keep believing that it gets better and that there are so many people out there because I think the the hopelessness can come from, okay, we're all reading this book. We all feel disconnected. Why why is it so hard to get people to make plans? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, let's get real about it. You're like, okay, so apparently we're all lonely. But seriously, Hillary, I, I've asked my friend three times to get together and she'll never make it a priority. I get that tension. See, the very first thing I said at the top, we we are very conflicted. We are very confused. <laughs> like, um, and I think it's just being honest with ourselves about it and believing if we are all this lonely, then there are other people out there that also want to do it better. And maybe it's not that girl that you're reaching out to. Maybe she's not in the season. She's prioritizing work a lot in the season. She's prioritizing something else. Maybe she is a little less happy and a little less peaceful because of this disconnection, but she's not ready to do something about it. But it's trusting that there's another girl next month around the corner. She's read this book. She's listened to the You're Welcome podcast. She's totally on board. She's willing to look at the 3% of her life to figure out how to make plans without canceling, how to actually say yes when the plans come about, how to not just say she wants closer relationships, but actually text the person back, how to actually get on the phone, how to actually you know, make dates and, and all of those really specific next steps. But we acknowledge it's the whole culture. He, he wrote a whole book about it and half of the ways to reconnect are the things that we're, that we're not doing, which is why he had to write a book about it. And a lot of people wanted to read this book, which is why it's a New York Times bestseller. So it's, it's all of us. It's not just your friend group. It's not just your city. It's not just your stage of life. It's not because you're single. It's not because you have young kids. It's not because you're retired. It's all of us, which can feel overwhelming or it can feel like, oh, okay, well, then it's not just me and it's not just where I'm at. But this clearly isn't making us happy. There's a lot of depression and anxiety going around. So we ultimately all are motivated or could be motivated to make it better if we just had the hope, if we just had the tools. And you know, now that I've listened to the You're Welcome podcast, I've got a little hope. I've got a little tools. I've, I've read this book and I decided to just start journaling about it, having conversations about it, 
doing a book club about it, you know, believing that there are going to be more people in the world who want this level of connection and that are going to be thrilled to meet me and see that I want the same. You know, friendship is one of my top episodes. I said that anxiety uh, is, which is why I did this three-part series, but friendship is another one. Like we, We want this. I know that I hear from you when I talk about the topic of adult friendship. So let this book be our proof, not our past friends. Let us not look to the way things have been or the way things are, but this book as proof that there are so many other people reading this book that want something different and are willing to take the steps to get in that direction. Let us keep looking and believing that we will find one another and be better friends when we do. Oh, wait. One more thing. Don't miss this. Before you go, love. P.S. Something I'm loving lately, I mentioned on the intro of this episode, which is the fact that I'm spending more time on FaceTime or occasionally Zoom with friends, families, groups of friends. And it is such a beautiful part that is coming out of this time. I am so grateful for the fact that we have this technology. It just adds such a genuine blessing to the season. And it really makes me think about how often I have exchanged text messages when I could have been sharing a voice memo, when I've shared voice memos, when I could have been hopping on a call, when I've hopped on a call, when I could have been doing a FaceTime, when I've done a one-on-one FaceTime, when I could have done a group Zoom because our family or our group of friends, even outside of coronavirus, does not all live all together. And in addition to that, something that I've been doing, and I've been meaning to share this over on Instagram, but I have so many ideas in my head of, oh, I should share this. Oh, I should share that. And I'm juggling my business and all the various things. So you are hearing it here first. I am screenshotting, whether that's on my phone or on my computer, the FaceTime or Zoom conversations that I'm having with folks with the vision of creating a um, a, a photo album, you know, one of those ones that you just go online and it gets automatically printed for you. You're not like, you're not using any of those photo corners like I used to back in high school to make your scrapbooks. You're just going and getting a little something printed that would be a, a small physical, uh, photo album of this time of who are the people that we were connecting with because we are, it, it just is so unique to have so much connection. I mean, guys, just think about it. What we are going to say to our kids or our grandkids, our great grandkids, wherever you are in the circle of life right now, for those pe- those people that are too young to really track and remember this. I said this to Jeremy today. My nephew is five. And I said, like, Henry's, he's four and a half. I said, Henry's not going to remember this. I mean, it's going to be a super vague memory, but he's not really going to have a visceral memory of this. And I said, just think of what we would be telling our kids or our grandkids about this time when, when no one left their house for months and everyone was afraid to go outside. I mean, it sounds like hearing our grandparents talk about going through Pearl Harbor or the, the Great Depression right? Like it, or the Holocaust. I mean, it's these, it feels so far away. It was history. You, we, most of us didn't live through, except for our, um, older generation of listeners here. Um, but it will be this unique thing that we experienced. And I've just been taking these screenshots to put together a photo album to say, you know, 30 years from now, how cool would it be to look through with our niece or nephew or kids or whomever of just like, well, oh, what's, what's this, Aunt Hillary? Remember when there were those few months when there was that pandemic and no one could leave the house and we would just talk to one another and imagine what the technology is going to be like at that point. Maybe it won't be FaceTime and Zoom. It'll be like virtual reality. And we're like, we didn't have virtual reality then. You know, we didn't have these holograms at that point. So we would just call and talk to each other over video and here, look, like here were your grandparents and here was your mom. And these were all of Uncle Jeremy's groomsmen. And this was Uncle Jeremy's birthday. And, you know, this was when our friend told us that she was pregnant. And and just to have kind of this this capsule of this time in a very easy way. All you got to do is take a screenshot when it's happening. And then eventually we can find one of those online things when all of this is over to like pop it up and just kind of have that as a 
inexpensive, easy, but sort of tangible way. I, I'm not a big DIY crafter type person. I have so much to do with my business that I will come up with these ideas and that I just will not ultimately end up following through on them. I have so many ideas that I'm like, I'd love to do something with my wedding dress, with the lace for my wedding dress. Yeah. Okay. It's been, it's been a year. I haven't even started on that project, but this project feels like it is something simple and feasible to do. And I think right now it's somehow just giving me a little bit of extra like joy and something in every one of those calls to be like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to remember this years from now. I'm actually, there's going to be a time when I look back and I don't know that I will look back fondly necessarily, but this is a unique experience in our lives. And we are going to tell people about this in future generations they can't imagine it. I can't imagine if my, my, you know, uh, family before me talked about a time when nobody left their house for three months. I mean, it just, it seems unfathomable. I've just, I've never heard that before. And we're going through it. And, um, I think for better or worse, this is our story. And, uh, myself personally, I'm just enjoying the idea of creating a little bit of art, a little bit of storytelling, a little bit of, um, capturing lightning in a bottle of what these moments are like. So in case that inspires you and or the people in your friends or family, I will pass that on to you. Thank you so much for listening today and please share this podcast with your friends. It is such a beautiful resource in this time. We have so many incredible episodes that are blessing people in this season and please continue to lean in and be present on Instagram and do not hesitate to reach out to me over there and tell me what you are going through. Uh, you can swipe up here and leave a voice memo with more podcasts coming and Instagrams coming. I truly want to know what you are wrestling with, what you are working through, what kind of uh, topics and content I can help to uh, speak to, support you, uh, entertain and educate and inspire and delight and uh, bring empathy and uh, all of the things in this season. So I will see you over there with grace and gumption. Till next Wednesday.